0: On January 1st, 2020, the world rang in the new year with few suspecting that it would see one of the most profound global crises since the Second World War. As this year draws to a close, many of us find ourselves reflecting on what has passed and what is to come. I'm David Blunt. This is the City Politics Podcast, a roundtable discussion on politics, international relations and current affairs. Today, we'll give you the city view on 2020 and the future of democracy. This year feels like it began decades ago, and I'm sure that for many of our listeners, it can't be over soon enough. However, one thing's deniable about 2020, it has been a memorable year for politics. Australian bushfires, tensions between Iran and the United States, escalating protests in Hong Kong, a bitter and divisive American presidential election, and the final act of the UK's Brexit drama amidst global uncertainty and the all-pervasive COVID-19 pandemic. Here at the City Politics Podcast, we decided to invite two friends of the show back on to reflect on this year and think about what 2021 has in store for democracy. We're joined today by Inderjee Parmar, professor of international politics, and Lise Butler, lecturer in modern history. Welcome back to the show and thank you for joining us. Today, we will be looking into the crystal ball to divine some questions that might be on our listeners' minds. So without further ado, let's pass things over to our resident prognosticator, Konstantin Vasek.
1: Thanks, <laughs> thanks, David, for the for the fantastic intro. Uh, and I'm really, really happy to have Lise and Jade uh, do the crystal ball with us uh, and to give us the, the power of their foresight. So let's start uh, doing the crystal ball. Uh, first question, Lise, uh, why don't you start? First question, will we be seeing fully packed football stadiums and concerts and tightly packed arenas in
2: 2021? Yes or no? I think possibly yes towards the end of next year.
1: Nitted. I think no. Question number two, 20 years from now, will we look back to 2020 and say, yes, this was a pretty bad year? Yes or no?
2: Yes. Yeah,
3: broadly. Yeah.
1: Well, we have some opportunity to sort of to get more, <laughs> to make it more complicated. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yes. Yeah. All right. That's a yes. Question number three, uh, and then let's say by the end of the coming year, will we say 2021 was definitely better than 2020? Least.
2: Yeah, I think I'll be optimistic. I'll say yes.
1: Great. Inderjit. Yes. So now this is a question for historians, future historians, but still historians. Number four, will future historians look back to 2020 and say this is the year in which things looked extremely bleak for the future of democracy? Least.
2: I mean, it depends on what you're comparing it to, quite obviously, and it depends on what happens next, and it depends on what our time frame is. But I do think it is a year where uh, some democratic norms have been challenged in a pretty fundamental way. So I'm gonna go with yes.
1: Thanks, Indigit. Uh,
3: no, I think, uh, no,
1: no. Number five, one year from now, will we look back at 2021 and conclude that much of the mess happening in 2020 Prompted a turnaround for the better in 2021. Please. Yeah. Imaget. Yes. Imaget has proven to be the um, the city university's uh, optimist in in residence anyway. So he's just you know he's just uh, confirming that right now. Thank you. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Things will get better, I think.
1: Yeah. Question know. number six: uh, Does 2020 mark the beginning of the end of Boris Johnson's tenure as prime minister? Please.
2: His prime ministership will end, uh, so we can always date that back to 2020.
3: I didn't know you were a lawyer.
2: Oh, I'm hedging <laughs> myself on, on this. Um, I'm going to go with yes, and I'm going to s- feel confident about that because historians can interpret it any way that they want to.
1: <laughs> In jet.
3: Yeah, yes, because he's a complete buffoon, and he's showed it this year consistently. And even oh, the, the right question
1: is, will voters see that too? Even right?
3: the, the right wing <laughs> press is against him now.
1: Thanks, you too. Uh, Question number seven. Uh, Has populism reached its peak of influence already in 2020? Lise? No. Indigit? Uh, Yes. Number eight. Will Corona stay the number one global issue in 2021? Lise? Yes. 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 Question number nine. Will we see the foundation of Trump TV or alternatively a regular Trump news hour in 2021, please?
2: I think almost certainly, yes.
1: Yeah. Inejit. Yes. And the final question, number 10. Will then President Biden be able to engineer a major reversal of Trumpism in 2021, please?
2: No. I think the cards are stacked against him in that respect, though I do think he might be able to make real progress in some areas.
1: Okay, thanks. Inejit. Uh, no.
3: All
1: right. Thank you so much. Uh, again, some, uh, great, uh, some great insight already. The interesting thing is that, uh, w- you know, we all have a, I mean, there's lots of interesting things about Corona, um, mm-hmm. but uh, one of the interesting things is that we've all acquired a level of expertise in questions of, you know, virus transmission and epidemiology that, you know, we wouldn't think that, you know, we would have that kind of expertise at the beginning of the year. I'm pretty sure about that. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know that being said, uh, Liz, let's start with you. if you look at if you look at Corona and what it is that it has done this year, sort of through the lens of the kinds of things that you study in your research and, and what what you teach at city university, what do you think is going to be sort of the most important effect there
2: that happened in you
1: know for this past year?
2: Yeah, okay. Um, I mean, I'm a historian of the British left with a real emphasis on the development of the welfare state. I'm interested in uh, state intervention and the, the political conditions under which it occurs. And I think that COVID has dramatically changed the political consensus around state action uh, and intervention in the economy and society, and that we've seen the state mobilized in response to the economic crisis caused by COVID in uh, new and surprising ways that none of us would have predicted 12 months ago. That said, I think it has done so largely in a way which upholds the economic status quo. So I think that there's limitations to this analysis, but I think it has changed expectations around what we can expect to see from the state going forward. Um, And I think that um, that's had a real meaningful impact on uh, people's political perceptions and expectations that could have a lasting effect.
3: I agree with uh, Lise. And I guess when we go back to 2008, the financial crisis and the immediate aftermath, a lot of people were looking to the United States and looking back to the New Deal. Uh, And uh, Barack Obama was even seen carrying a copy of a book uh, about the New Deal at that time. And I think people felt that perhaps there was a change moment, that neoliberalism was going to be reversed and there's a sort of Keynesian, uh, a much more kind philosophical Keynesianism as opposed to a emergency bailout kind of state action. In a way it was interesting because the philosophy didn't change. It was really fueling neoliberalism to try to get out of the very crisis which had been caused by that phenomenon uh, from the 80s. And I think Lise is right, I think the the way in which Governments like uh, the UK government and also the American have been forced to take state action. Uh, it isn't a full-blooded kind of embrace of the state, the legitimacy of the state. I think that Reagan idea that the government government is not the solution, it is a problem, I think that philosophy is still here. So I think they're just managing through this period and, and further fueling kind of the uh, corporate sector to provide the solutions to this as far as it's possible. So, so uh, unfortunately, I think it's going to be a continuation of, of that, but certainly the state <clears throat> and state action and people's desire to push to the state in directions of action, actually that has increased. You can see that with Marcus Rashford going back to the football and stadium and all that. Uh, the fact that he wanted and he mobilized around free school meals for children um, during the holidays. And the amount of support that he got and the car parks at hospitals and the fees being charged and those kinds of things. So I think people expect a lot more of the state, uh, but I'm not sure that it's going to have a lasting effect um, beyond the, the crisis itself.
2: I think that we are seeing the effects of this in, in very different and sometimes quite contradictory ways. So on the one hand, I do think that there has been renewed attention to and appreciation of certain kinds of um, public sector services such as, for example, healthcare, which simply can't operate according to an economic rationality. And there's been, I think, renewed criticism of the ways in which policies driven by economic rationality, such as like, let's get everyone back into restaurants right after when there's still a deadly virus going around, have, been, have come under increasing scrutiny. So I think that there's been a kind of shifting the discourse away from basically a kind of neoliberal market-oriented framework. On the other hand, over the last few months, we have seen unprecedented levels of wealth concentration amongst uh, tech giants and the wealthiest members of society. You know, I don't think anyone can underestimate the impact of that the potential long term impact of that on our global political and social institutions going forward. And I don't yet see that there's political will to address that properly. I also think that one of the things we've seen over the last 12 months has been a real marginalization of democratic socialist politics in the US, in the UK, and elsewhere. So whereas previously we had Corbyn and, and, uh, and Sanders, um, you know, who, who, who seem to be, um, if, if not in, well, certainly not in power, but um, Uh, articulating something that was a politically viable alternative, now that seems increasingly marginal. So I think we've got, there's a lot of contrasting impacts here, and it it really remains to be seen what ultimately happens. And I think a lot of that will have to do with political will um, and the, the ways in which policymakers operate on the back of this.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really good point, especially on the inequalities being produced by coronavirus that I think we really haven't come to terms with because they haven't had enough time to percolate but the top 1% of society has done extremely well out of coronavirus, it's almost undeniable. Uh, at a time where there is increased state spending, basically to defend the system that has enriched them already. And the bill's gonna come due, it's gonna come due in the not too distant future, and there's gonna have to be a serious discussion about how we pay for, uh, for you know, all of the resources that have been, exp- have been expended in 2020, and whether that burden's going to fall on you know, working class and middle class people, or whether there's going to have to be a more serious thought thinking or thinking done about wealth taxes and uh, redistribution in society. But I would say, you know, uh, just like Lisa was saying, this this doesn't seem to be occupying many people uh, on the center or on the left wing of politics right now. There does seem to be this rallying around getting things back to normal in sort of horrible quotations, which means, you know, the neoliberal consensus, at least that's how it seems to me.
3: You look at radical changes which have occurred, historically, and which did lead to the shift from the, thir- from the 30s and into the 40s uh, in the UK and America as well. It had to be a kind of uh, elite recognition, uh, and elite party polit- political leadership's recognition that there was a kind of fundamental crisis of stability and that it needed a kind of overhaul, as well as combined with mass movements uh, and then sharpened by the war. Mm. Um, and we don't have the sharpness and the effect and the pressures of warfare, uh, not yet anyway, but we do have all the other things. Mm. And I wonder what the impact the war actually had in the, in the construction or the reconstruction of the state uh, after 1945, now, whether yeah. the same would have happened necessarily had the war not occurred. And I think that's a serious issue.
2: I'm delighted that we're back on my own knowledge terrain here. I was, I was worried that a, a podcast about 2020 was going to be outside of my can as a historian, but you know the impact of World War II on the development of the welfare state is really where I feel most comfortable. But one thing that I would say in response to Inderjeet's comment is that the political consensus that was that, that allowed for the welfare state to be constructed um, in the UK, and I think elsewhere, didn't happen overnight. It took decades of work. And um, uh, my book is on a guy called Michael Young, who wrote the 1945 Labour Party election manifesto. And one of the comments that he makes derisively about that manifesto is, oh, well, it was actually just Uh, a collection of beverage plus canes plus socialism. So it was an agglomeration of a whole set of social democratic um, and even liberal ideas that had been percolating for a very, very, very long time and usually under conditions of retreat, usually not winning, right? Usually not actually getting any traction. And so, you know, the message there is that, you know, Uh, when a crisis hits, sometimes you take the the ideas that you have available to you, right? But also that change happens very, very, very slowly and under very unusual conditions. So I'm not entirely pessimistic about the opportunity for better policies towards inequality, more redistributive policies, but I'm cautious that it doesn't happen all at once and that we shouldn't expect anything to to happen overnight.
1: Another thought that that I have um, when thinking about what you guys just said is, uh, is corona the kind of crisis that can prompt this kind of uh, response? Whether it's uh, it's slow or whether it's fast, whether it's revolutionary or evolutionary, that's not the issue. But generally, is a medical crisis the kind of crisis that can lead to this? And what makes me think of that is the, the way in which we now um, about a hundred years later, think of the aftermath of World War One. I. I mean, there was sort of two overlapping consecutive crises. There was the war, obviously, and then there was the Spanish flu. And you know, what we've learned now, as all we're all armchair epidemiologists, so we're even familiar with the history of uh, of armchair epidemiology. Now, we've all learned that the Spanish flu is a largely and, and considerably underestimated event in the in the history of the West, uh, at least in the history of of, of Europe. And maybe that has something to do with how we think of, um, of history and how it develops. Um, so, you know, long sort of a long statement and brief question at mm-hmm. the end. Is that maybe a, a reason um, that Corona will not have this sort of revolutionizing effect? And has that something to do with the kind of crisis that it is? Is there something about medical emergencies that doesn't sort of count in that respect?
3: It's a great question. I, I mean, I, I used to teach this uh, course called the Red Scare of 1919. And, and I read loads of historians. I'm not a historian, but I read a lot of histories of that period. I have to say, the Spanish flu hardly made it into those books. You know, yeah. I think maybe one or two references here and there, and it's only when this pandemic broke out that I went back to some of those books, and I thought, you guys didn't talk about it at all. So as a non-historian, I was quite surprised. But I think, you know, we are 100 years later, 100 years of development of the state and uh, the development of kind of democratic, democratic norms and, and demands on the state as well. So I think it's a different thing now than maybe then, and also medically, scientifically, there's a, there's there are far more, you know, kind of knowledge and ability of the state and others to, to try to manage it. But the knock-on effects of this uh, pandemic, uh, the economic effect and the kind of exacerbation of inequalities, I think has created a a very large groundswell of uh, discontent. That discontent has been there for for other reasons for quite a long time. Uh, It seems to have burst out in various ways, and I think it is reflected in the American twenty twenty election. Despite the fact that Biden is a is a very mainstream kind of candidate, the fact of eighty million or eighty one million votes and seventy four million for Trump, that tells us a great deal about there's not much happiness about what is going on in the United States. So I think that that mass groundswell of discontent, partially fueled by the pandemic, but exacerbating other things, I think the big thing is is elite, is elite recognition. And not even that, whether the elites are gonna to have to pay a cost, a price for what is happening. I don't think they believe at the moment they're going to pay a price, but you can read any risk management firm, Uh, any of these hedge fund managers predicting this is 1938 or 1939 or or 1917 or whatever you want to call it. But politically, they don't believe that they're going to pay a price for what is happening at the moment. And I think that's where probably the war was so significant, because people come out of wars expecting a lot more uh, than they do otherwise, because they have risked their lives and sacrificed so much. So I just wonder whether the elites are going to recognize the necessity for change.
2: I am a historian and I share Indrajit's experience of when the pandemic hit going, why didn't I spend more time thinking about this, about the 1918 flu? But I think that in retrospect, there's some pretty important differences. One uh, is that, of course, the flu was wrapped up in the aftermath of the First World War and so it does get bundled into the various uh, social and political changes that were happening at that time. And I think it's also important not to underestimate just how much political turmoil there was going on at that time and how much pressure governments were under. Um, I think that we tend to forget that a little bit in the wake of the interwar period, which tends to throw that into less sharp relief, but um, it wasn't an easy time for governments. Um, second, of course, you know the Spanish flu occurred at a time when we didn't have universal health care in the way that we do now, and it it occurred at a time when the state was less inclined to respond in the quite forceful, quite dramatic, and um, quite economically impactful way that it has more recently. Right? There wasn't mass lockdown in response to the Spanish flu. There wasn't a dramatic uh, economic impact. So what we're what we've seen with COVID is not just the impacts of a disease, but the impacts of a sharp Government-produced lockdown um, on the global economy, and so I think a better analogy might be a financial one, right? It might be um, it might be economic crisis rather than another disease. In response to Energy's question about how will elites pay or will elites pay, you know, I think it's very important to remember that when we faced other periods of real crisis, such as wars, um, our historical memory here tends to go to the early 20th century in the First and Second World War. There's always the threat of international communism that that is there, that is real, that is acting on political actors in Western democracies. And um, I think that that meaningfully shaped the ways in which political actors responded to those sorts of crises.
0: It's tempting to think of Corona as having the potential to be a fulcrum in the international system. And certainly, you know, pandemic diseases have had have had this effect in the past. You know, I think of, you know, I'm putting on my sort of antiquarian habit. If we think about the plague of Justinian, which uh, essentially prevented—well, some people would argue it prevented—the Byzantine Empire from re-establishing strong control over the Italian Peninsula, which has sort of ripple effects down the years. Uh, we can look at the Black Death, uh, which managed to actually level things out in Europe quite significantly mainly by killing the working class in sufficient numbers that they could then renegotiate their wages with their feudal overlords. But I'm not sure whether corona is this sort of crisis, mainly because of its lack of mortality. Uh, In both cases that I referred to before, you know, a lot of people died. And while over a million people have died globally as a share of a 7.5 billion human population, it's, it's minimal, right? So it doesn't seem to be this sort of demographic shift. I think, if it is going to be a fulcrum type moment, it will rely on the payment. Who picks up the bill at the end? And right now, I think Inderjit's right. The elites don't seem to be convinced that they're going to be paying much uh, in terms of sort of renegotiating for a social peace. And that's dangerous, I think. Uh, if it comes down that there's you know fewer jobs going around, if wages remain stagnant, like they have since the late 1970s, with increased demands over productivity to make up for the losses of the pandemic, you're going to see a working and lower middle class increasingly squeezed uh, to make up for lost corporate profits. And this is a recipe for social unrest. And I think the the point that Lise just made about the lack of international communism is a very good one. And it's one of the reasons why I'm not ready to sort of roll out the red flag for social revolution right now because we are in this continued situation of there is no alternative, right? No one can articulate a clear alternative to neoliberalism, this Reaganite uh, consensus that developed in the 1980s uh, that can command an electoral majority, right? You know, there are people who will advocate social democracy. There are people out there who are democratic socialists or socialists and communists and anarchists, but they don't have a working block, that can sort of change society. Whereas the neoliberal parties, they're still there, right? And uh, they don't seem to be going anywhere. Uh, So I think if they can sort of get through the next five years, uh, you know, I think things won't change particularly dramatically. But I'm a downer.
3: You look at the American election, the last two elections, there's a kind of a, there's definitely a shift to the right and a kind of an authoritarian shift. A populist and nationalist shift, that, and embedded in that is also the desire for a national economic, sort of economic nationalism. So there is that kind of call on, um, you know, d- the deindustrialized worker worker areas uh, of the United States and elsewhere, and those people feeling left behind. And then, then on the left, there's also a kind of Sanders-esque uh, sort of movement, which I think has actually probably grown. Uh, despite the fact that he's marginalised out of the party politics. So, and I think the fact that Trump has grown his vote quite radically, and I think the left is responsible for the mobilisation of quite a big chunk of that 81 million of Bidens. So I think at that kind of groundswell levels, I think there is a kind of dis- great deal of discontent. But, it, but uh, you're right, it doesn't have that sort of galvanising leadership. Uh, which is able to secure uh, secure power and, and I think that could roil on for quite some time, but it does offer hope as well because that could be the, that, that could be the, the politics which pushes Biden as well to be much more nationalistic, which could have its uh, chauvinistic effects, but it also could have, mean that you need national policy. Uh, some kind of national infrastructure policy or industrial policy, economic renewal policies, which could have then effects, which are are economic effects on the population. So purely on a pragmatic basis.
2: I think it's been really interesting to see the way in which right wing parties have sought to justify the economic interventions that have been required in response to the COVID crisis by way of different kinds of historical analogies. Um, We're of course familiar with Uh, Trump's Make America Great Again. But um, one of the things I noticed in the British context, for example, was Michael Gove suddenly invoking this rhetoric of the New Deal and looking to the sort of mid-century spirit of the New Deal as a way to justify a more interventionist, more active state. And it was interesting to me that he didn't go to, uh, to the British context. He didn't go to the Attlee government. He didn't go to, um, to you know, the welfare state here in, in this country, which I think is indicative of an attempt for, by the right to um, find ways to justify a big state, an interventionist state, but one which is not reliant upon a socialist or even a social democratic frame uh, in order to, to make sense of its interventions.
3: And also just picking up on the Gove point, I think uh, in and around the kind of things that you're talking about Gove saying, he also cited Gramsci. In which he said that the there's a crisis <laughs> of the order, the old <laughs> is dying, but the new is yet to be born, yeah, so you know they're all wheeling crunchy yeah, uh, but yeah. I think the point about New Deal and him but i didn't I hadn't picked that up, I suppose in a way, as you say, it's not a social democratic uh alternative it's it's a kind of much more market oriented and not nationalization of the means of production distribution and exchange, and yeah. so on either so I wonder whether that might not be a sort of halfway point between social democracy and neoliberalism, which yeah. which might find some sort of support in the future.
2: Yeah, though I would want to ask Michael Gove whether he would be on board with the taxation rates, the top rates of taxation that were required for the New oh, Deal. Right? which seems like the vital point.
1: I think one thing that um, that uh, sort of a link between the phenomenon of uh, of uh, Corona. And the phenomenon of populism, which is the second sort of, uh, you know, major sort of development of 2020, the development of populism is the fact that populist leaders, by and large, have done a much worse job than their mainstream counterparts in managing corona. And this is not to be unexpected, in a sense, um, because there is a rejection of um, sort of this, 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 um, well, the notion of competence, really, there's a selection of, may talk or selection of people to political office based on some proven sort of competence uh, um, by uh, populist leaders, uh, and instead they've they found various other ways of of of, of hiring people. In, and Usually, it ends up being uh, cronyism. You know, there's there's yeah. much there's not much of an alternative for, for populist leaders who claim that they know the people best and. Uh, you know, then obviously cronyous policies, then there's some even ideological justification for that. You know, allow me to choose whoever is in my family or in sort of my sphere of influence or my my movement or whatever. And they must be sort of just by extension of being part of my group, my peer group, they must be better at their job than, you know, whatever expert there is. So long story short, um, you know, this uh, is clearly uh, sort of the, the link between populism, in my mind, populism and, and competence. Um, so is this um, the fact that that hasn't really worked out? I mean, there's evidence for that from Brazil over Russia to the United States and the United Kingdom uh, to name just four examples. Uh, is that, uh, you know, what does that teach us about the future of populism? And here I want to go back to, um, to the, the one area where you guys were uh, making sort of uh, opposing predictions where Lee said Uh, you know, in in, in response to the question that populism reached its peak of influence in 2020, Inderjit said yes, um, uh, and I assume that means it's on the way down, whereas Lee said no. So Lise, what what made you say that? And uh, what was on your mind anyway? Because you wanted to to, to jump in when uh, I was talking about competence already. Yeah. uh,
2: So on the question of populism, um, I suppose I'm just a bit of a pessimist. (laughs) And uh, I, I, I think we... you know, we we are seeing the defeat of Donald Trump. I think that some of the political forces that were associated with the populist push for Brexit are not as influential as they have been, but I certainly don't underestimate um, their ability to bounce back. So I think I'm just inherently a bit pessimistic on that sort of thing. But I do think, and the reason I wanted to jump in on this point, I do think that this year has seen really interesting new conversations about expertise. Um, And so I think we're a long ways away from a couple of years ago where, again, coming back to Michael Gove, who somehow was a theme of this podcast, you know, said, I think we've heard just about enough from the experts. Um, What we've seen over the last year is countless leaders, heads of state coming out on podiums surrounded by medical experts and justifying their policies with reference to medical experts and so you know we're, we're about to really see um how effective this has been in terms of people's uptake of vaccines there's going to be some really interesting political dynamics that are going to emerge as the vaccine rolls out and we've seen that um uh the former um, people like Nigel Farage have now become strong, um, well, they've become lockdown skeptics, um, but I think they're ra- that they're, that's wrapped up with a kind of culture war politics, which also has skepticism about vaccines, about expertise, about science tied up within it. I think that expertise remains very contested territory. And on the one hand, we have seen it kind of return uh, to a slightly more prominent political place, but on the other hand, we don't know how that's gonna go over the coming months, and it could be interesting.
3: You know, it's a it's a volatile situation, and what was encouraging to me, I think, is, is two things: one in the UK, one in um, one in America, is that I think this this defeat for Trump, I think, it is quite decisive. Uh, Seven million votes, and uh, a, a, you know, a very large number of electoral college votes, and the fact that it galvanised such a large proportion of the pop uh, of the electorate to turn out bigger turnout than since 1900. Uh, I think that incompetence on the pandemic, which is wrapped up with the politics of anti-expertise and and so on, I think even Republican voters were more skeptical of Trump's handling of the pandemic itself. And the Democratic voters, of course, were very, very... So I think it actually has punctured a big hole and I, you know, it, it could still move in the other direction. It depends on the uh, opportunity available to, to Biden and co, uh, to, to actually make some changes. Uh, if they don't, then it could well be a reversal in 2024, uh, starting in 2022, I suppose. But I think even in Britain as well, I think there has been a kind of quite decisive shift against Boris Johnson and the politics of buffoonery, uh, which he employs. and. And I think now that even the Daily Mail and the Daily Express and a few others have questioned him much more. Daily Telegraph, <clears throat> they've questioned his competence. I think they see him losing in 2023, 2024. I think that, like the good conservatives that they are, they'll ditch him probably about 12 to 18 months before the election, uh, and bring in another stooge who will probably deliver them the victory that they're looking for. But I think it'll shift the balance within the Conservative Party away from that kind of force. Uh, and this Brexit, hard Brexit, no Brexit, whatever, hard deal, no deal, I think that's going to do them a lot of political damage as well, because that's also been based on the same kind of lack of expertise, mm-hmm. it'll all be fine, we are, uh, you know, blah, blah, blah. So I think, it, I think there is a shift going on, but it depends, if you like, on these mass mobilizations, because I think the British and American political elites, and I think, probably the French and others as well. I don't think they see that there's a price to pay for anything at the moment.
0: I think the, the point's well taken that Biden won the American election by 7 million votes. But if you look at the actual sort of electoral college win that he managed to get together, it was about 70,000 votes that got Biden over the top. Uh, and those are concentrated in a few swing states. And that's raises very alarming... Possibilities in, that a future presidential election you could have someone with a huge popular vote win, uh, losing the presidency, uh, which is you know a bit concerning. But I think the underlying concern that I have regarding populism is that even having lost the election, even having run you know an embarrassing sort of faux coup narrative after uh, his defeat, Trump's approval ratings are still forty two percent. Which is pretty shocking uh, that 42% of Americans are still sticking with him. Mm. And this seems to have the effect, it seems to be the mainstreaming of a conspiracy theory mind mm. into democratic politics uh, that might not be the majority, but it's not going anywhere. And I think this is a big problem for the future of democracy. Uh, if you have citizens who are unwilling to engage with facts, you know, simple facts, Uh, This is a problem for social cohesion that's required to keep democracies taking over. Mm. And in terms of the United Kingdom, uh, I think you're right that Boris Johnson has had a catastrophic fall in his personal approval ratings. But uh, the Conservative Party is still a parody with Labour, which is shocking considering the mismanagement of the corona pandemic. And uh, this, Mm. again, might reveal this hard core of people who... Might uh, be willing to shoot the messenger, but are still willing to hear the message uh, when it comes to this right-wing populism. And uh, I, I find it sort of the bitter, uh, bitter aftertaste of these wins, uh, or sort of the American election win, is that this populism doesn't seem to be going anywhere. It might be at the peak influence, but it seems to be in decline. And I think Johnson will go. I think I don't think he's going to be prime minister at the end of 2021, personally. But uh, whether, he'll be, whether this will be a disappearance of the Farage's Johnsonite
1: right wing, I don't think so. So what, what does this all mean for democracy then? I mean, let's ask the really big questions here. You know, we've, we've just done COVID populism. That isn't big enough yet. Now we're talking about the future of democracy. Obviously, that all has a role to play in that. And here again, uh, the two of you had uh, you know slightly different interpretations of uh, 2020 when I uh, asked you, whether future historians look back to 2020 and say that this is the year in which things looked extremely bleak for the future of democracy, Lee said yes, and Inderjit uh, said no. Um, so let's maybe start with Indagit now. Uh, um, why, why would you think that? Why doesn't it look so bleak?
3: We're in a kind of a, a turbulence which has possibilities for movement in more than one direction. And I agree with David that When you look at those kind of numbers of 42, 45% approval for what's been happening in the last two or three weeks, it is pretty shocking. But in a way, the fact that Donald Trump became president of the United States was the original shock, as in, how could somebody like that get into that position? And I think that that suggests that there's there's a deep schism between massive ordinary voters and the mainstream leadership of the political parties and the kind of things that they've been putting forward and the interests which they kind of cohere and ally with. And I don't think that's gone away. So I think at the base level, uh, there's a great groundswell for quite radical change. But the machinery of party politics and the way in which that party politics operates uh, doesn't appear to allow for elite politics to shift in that kind of a direction. And I think that, so what we've got is, we actually have democratic mass mobilizations. If you count ordinary people as part of the population and the electorate, you have huge amounts of discontent. um, And it is increasingly uh, militant and expressed. I mean, what, what did we last week or two weeks ago? uh, There's 250 million Indian workers on a general strike. The biggest general strike in the history of the world. God, you know, where was that even in the newspapers uh, or on the TV? But, you know, that shows, I mean, there's a populist government which claims to stand for the ordinary people, and there you've got a massive proportion of the population, a, a quarter of the population, out on strike.
2: I think all politics are identity politics. And I see the emergence of identity politics, particularly in the 60s and the 70s, as uh, a call, a demand that identities uh, that weren't mainstream identities uh, be given more political emphasis. So, very often, for say, uh, feminists uh, or anti racist activists, they were operating in a left wing political context where there'd been a lot of emphasis placed on the demands of male labor male unionized labor and uh that tended to be white and male and so the emphasis was on expanding the expanding pro- pro- progressive politics to incorporate new and previously marginalized identities right so again i think all, all politics is identity politics there's a couple of different themes that we've got running in this conversation um these are the questions about democracy and my more pessimistic response in the crystal ball exercise at the beginning i was just deeply troubled by. Trump's behavior and his continuing behavior in the wake of the the election and troubled in a way personally that I hadn't experienced before. It was existentially troubling and it genuinely led me to fear for the future of democracy. He, he doesn't seem to be likely to to win in his continued insistence that he has won the election, but it seems to hearken or to, um, to threaten the possibility of a more of a deeper unsettling of democratic norms of procedure uh, and of the rule of law. And, And so to my mind, um, the question is less about populism and I, I, I think populism can mean a lot of different things um, and it, quite often the definition of populism is quite unclear. We live in an age of actually pretty high political participation as Inderjeet's reminder of the general strike in India um, is hugely important. I think we, we live in an age of significant mass political mobilization. The turnout in the last US election was very high um, and that's, that's a good thing. Um, And I think populism is often a term that we use with regards to ideas we don't like, (laughs) um, be it on the left or on the right. Um, Konstantin is really the expert on this, and I'm sure he'd push back on this. Um, But for me, it's less about populism and more about the erosion of democratic norms and democratic institutions. Um, That's what I find find worrying. That's what I find troubling. And that's that's why I have a a somewhat more pessimistic diagnosis about what we might see in years to come.
1: Let me say something in support of Inderjit's point and add a a little bit of another layer to that. Um, This is something that's been on my mind um, for for a while. And uh, and now I I think I have a way to sort of verbalize it. So I really appreciate uh, you guys for sort of giving me the push to verbalize that. And what I think is is the problem with the way in which we talk about identity politics uh, is that we oftentimes conflate two different things when we use that term. Now, one thing that could be called identity politics is politics guided by a motive for achieving policy change. Uh, And these policies then relate to questions of identity. And I think that's what Lise had in mind. Lise was saying about what happened in the 1960s and 1970s, where essentially women saying, well, we want to have reproductive rights we want to have an equal share uh, in the world of politics and the economy and, and, and less to do in the household, and uh, we want the private to be political. These were all major feminist issues, and they were related to identity, of course. And, you know, even in the late 19th century, workers, and this is also has been evident in what Inderjit was saying, workers obviously didn't just ask for, oh, give me, you know, two two pounds more uh, minimum wage or whatever the uh, c- c- inflation You know, uh, uh, sort of a cleared uh, equivalent of that was in the 19th century. There was also, I want to be recognized. And recognition, however, at that time, and also in what Lee said, worked through actually implementing policies that had to be justified in how they were justifiable and how they were right. Uh, and you know, it, it's not difficult to say that workers should have the right to vote, um, that you know, women should be represented uh, should be represented on on company boards, and that they should have rep- uh, reproductive rights. And ninety five percent of that is is sort of the the mainstream of how we think of good policies nowadays. There's some aversion, mm-hmm. um, but for the most part, we have accepted that. Um, um, so this is identity politics understood as. Uh, the types of uh, political conflict that gets at and that is, uh, you know, geared at uh, achieving actual policy change, but that is sort of related to people's identity. Now, what I think, uh, and that's not problematic at all. So there I'm with uh, with Liz, uh, because that's just the, the, the way in which policy conflict works out. But I think Imajit is absolutely right in pointing out that identity politics can be hugely problematic um, and we're not far away from notions of false consciousness here, in my mind, um, even though I wouldn't really use that, that term, sort of quoting in, in uh, Lenin uh, specifically, but I think the notion is, is absolutely applicable the notion that people are sort of convinced to embrace uh, sort of political battle cries that really sort of direct them away from their, from their actual basic needs. And these basic needs can be economic, they can also be identity-based. And this always happens when identity politics becomes a type of politics that is not about achieving specific policy changes anymore, but it becomes a struggle, not just for recognition, but even a struggle for distinction and superiority of oneself over others. And I think that's something that we're seeing in the United States. I think Trump is so usually successful, not because he actually implements policies that benefit his constituency. He's so usually successful because he gives a voice to people, and this was all sounds good for now, the voice of people that you know didn't feel that they had much of a voice. but it's more than that, uh, it's uh, an attempt to, obviously, in, in, in involve with racism. It's an attempt to, to involve social Darwinism. Uh, to uh, you know make people feel better about themselves at the expense of others, and that 's the kind of identity politics that I think is usually problematic, so long story short, what I think is you know there is obviously a type of identity politics and what we call identity politics, but which in my mind shouldn 't be called identity politics that is not problematic at all um because it 's just about you know changing policies for certain groups that have something to do with their identity, but then there's a type of identity politics that is very problematic. When identity politics becomes looking to the political realm to establish some sort of superiority over other groups. And that is usually
0: problematic. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point, Constantine, about the sort of uh, demographic supremacy or identity-based supremacy in democracies and how damaging it is. Uh, and I think that there's pretty good evidence, uh, or there's increasing evidence that there is a, a big problem for democracies around generations. Right. So there was a, a recent study released by Cambridge. They, they did a survey of 75 countries looking at satisfaction with democracy. And uh, for the interwar generation and the baby boom generation, you know, basically people born before 1964, uh, there was a over 50% approval rating for democracy, which is actually surprisingly low when you consider that. Uh, but if you look at Generation X and the millennials, it's significantly lower. It's below 50%. Uh, And this, I think, does reflect a structural problem in contemporary democratic societies where the younger generation is not feeling like democracy is working for them, that it's not uh, living up to the promises that were delivered to previous generations. Whether we're talking about things like subsidized university, uh, employment opportunities, pensions, democracy doesn't seem to be delivering for young-ish people these days. And the recent American presidential election, I think, was Very iconic for this, because Trump versus Biden made the Soviet Politburo in the 1980s look like a YMCA. Now this is the politics of a previous generation, uh, and there are no youth candidates, right? Uh, I mean, there is this uh, shocking uh, demographic absence of leading Democratic or leading uh, youth politicians or young politicians, with the possible exception of people like uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez in the States, who is marginalized by her own party. Uh, because of, you know, people who are in their 40s right now still don't have control over the mechanisms of power in a lot of the major political parties in the Western world. And this is something that gives me anxiety about democracy. The uh, question of intergenerational justice, which is highly neglected right now. Uh, And the solution to that, you know, might be something that looks anti-democratic because, of course, the baby boom generation has had demographic uh, superiority for a long time, and if one vote counts, then they're going to win every contest uh, until things start shifting uh, in, in in terms of the population. But that's a worry for democracy, I think.
1: And I think it's a worry for Generation Xers like me, who feel it's always just about Boomers and and, and Millennials. And you know, we're there. You know, we're also there. Don't call us Boomers. Don't call us Millennials. We're our own thing, right? But anyway, uh, Elise just wanted to jump in earlier, so Elise, please.
2: I mean, I, I do want to return to briefly to the identity politics point, and Indrajit hasn't had the chance to come back in, and so I do want to make sure he gets a chance if he wants to continue on this vein. But I mean, Black Lives Matter is identity politics. It's also rooted in tangible economic and social conditions and economic and social problems, and it also serves. It serves, and I think served as a crucible for deep-seated anger and frustration in American society about Trump and about the kinds of identity politics which he represented, his embrace by white supremacists um, and his, his, his broader political project. So I do think all politics, is identity politics, I think all political uh, movements draw on certain forms of identity in order to, to progress their cause. I think that Rejecting certain forms of political engagement as identity politics can sometimes occlude more than it than it reveals. And there's a deeper conversation there, um, which we can or can't or or don't need to to pick up. I mean, with regards to uh, intergenerational justice. I mean, I'm really glad David brought that up. I think it's huge. I think it's massive um and um i you know i'm not sure that i see the solutions to it as less democracy and i'm a bit surprised by that study that david cited that younger people don't like democracy i wonder i mean i'm not a social scientist but it makes me wonder about the wording of that whether you know what's being read there is how satisfied are you with the ways in which democracy has worked for you versus how do you feel about the principle of democracy which are obviously pretty different questions um I mean, I think that the response to uh, the severe questions of intergenerational justice that we face right now is good policy. And I hope that as more and more younger people um, who care enormously about these issues enter politics, that will begin to change. But maybe that's the optimist in me.
3: Yeah,
2: just about the identity politics thing,
3: um, which is something which has been on my mind a long time. Now, I'm familiar with those 60s movements and the oppression of women and in certain contexts and of uh, the oppression by women, of women of white women, of women of color in the same feminist movements, for example. So there's absolutely justification and no question from my point of view about the necessity to struggle for, for justice on, and equality and so on. But I think what has happened since then is a little bit, is qualitatively different from that period. In that period, it was that there is a double burden for, say, women of colour in male-dominated black liberation organisations. That is, you're a woman and you're a person of colour and you're being therefore you know, often exploited or whatever in the uh, civil rights movements and so on. But so that you had two struggles and those two struggles were connected with one another. I think what has happened with identity politics is very well captured in a, in a fantastic book by uh, G. William Domhoff, uh, called Diversity in the Power Elite in the United States, published in the late 90s and then republished two or three times in the early part of this century, where they look at uh, identity groups, particular identity groups, and these are non-economic identity groups, and the way in which they see themselves Uh, as they progress up the ladder of corporate, educational, or governmental political life. And so what I would conclude is really that identity politics in American politics is a politics of the affluent and of the relatively powerful. They are using those positions and those turfs to negotiate and renegotiate their own positions. But the people who are actually in the mass membership of that identity group get very little from identity politics. Look at Barack Obama. African-Americans voted for him twice, in 95% kind of uh, loyalty. They were worse off economically and financially after he left office in 2016, 2017, than they were when he entered office. The people voting for President Trump this time round are in counties which are being ravaged by coronavirus and also our economically ravaged communities as well. You don't, you know, this identity politics is divorced from the politics of distribution, and and I think it plays a divisive role. It it sort of uh, comes to the head of a legitimate demand, but it actually ends up um, not delivering any benefits other than. The possibility of a role model, someone who sounds like me, Donald Trump, uh, and shouts at the TV like an old uncle, uh, or someone who looks like me in in the White House, Barack Obama, because he's African American, that is about as much as it, as far as it goes. Because those, so identity politics, I think, is a way of mobilizing uh, for the status quo, and leaving intact inequalities which are deeply material, which actually have impacted those identity groups. But when you, it's a bit like mobilizing nationalism in order to uh, rip people away from the deeper sources of their problems, which might be in their own economy, society, and so on. And I I think that's what I'm talking about. When I'm referring to identity politics, it's that kind of identity politics, not the fact that there is racism, there is sexism, there is discriminations, Against various uh, types of identity groups, it's the politics of identity politics, and I think that's that's my that's the point I'm trying to to read.
2: I agree with most of what you've just said there, Inderjeet. and I certainly think that a politics which privileges uh, representation over distribution um, is is lacking in something really important. Um, I, I guess I guess my response would be that I certainly see within various social justice movements precisely that critique, right? So you know, within feminism, of course, there's a huge. Yeah. Uh, conversation fight between feminists who prioritize representation, uh, lean in feminists, liberal feminists, and mm-hmm. feminists who are much more concerned with distributional issues. And my worry would be that in um, being concerned about identity politics as such, you write off both of those um, strands of analysis. You write off the really vital distributional questions that are at the heart of these movements. And I think really are at the heart of racial justice movements, are at the heart of many aspects of, of, of the feminist movement historically, are at the heart of working class representation movements. Um, it's not to say that I think just having, you know, women and people in color on boards is, is, is necessarily adequate. I take your point in that respect, um, but I, I don't want to write off these movements as a whole because uh, some aspects of them have been more preoccupied with representation and distribution than they ought to be.
1: So now uh, that you guys sort of uh, brought into really sharp focus um, many of the issues um, of 2020 that you sort of really have uh, revolved around questions of political identity, uh, questions of competence, uh, questions of mobilization. uh, That's really, I think, sort of a a very accurate sort of uh, assessment of what was going on in in 2020 and then what what might sort of sort of stay off that um, uh, for, for the next uh, few years to come. Now, you both were sort of, uh, you had a, somewhat, a bit different perspectives on the question of identity politics specifically, um, but you were also sort of reluctant to say that there's going to be a major um, sort, of, sort of transformative change uh, coming up anytime soon. And I think David uh, uh, as well, and, and, and I think I, I didn't say that, but I have... Um, uh, similar reservations. Now the question is, going back to your crystal ball questions, this is relentless, right? We're always going back to the crystal ball. Um, you know, when I asked you guys uh, whether one year from now, will we look back at 2021 and conclude that much of the mess happening in 2020 prompted a turnaround for the better in 2021, both of you said yes. And as far as I remember, you didn't even hesitate much. So, is that just because 2021, 2020 was so bad, and it's you know hard to sort of get worse than that, or is it uh, uh, sort of the beginning of maybe a long-term trend, sort of, for sort of social, more social justice and um, uh, and other sort of desirable sort of developments um, that we've all sort of uh, talked about here, or is it um, is it just because well, how, how much worse can it be?
3: I think to some extent, I think the feeling of 2020, everybody wants to see the back of 2020. I I just think what I would have felt like, and I guess you and uh, other people I know as well, if Donald Trump had won the election, because I think if he had won the election, I think then there is no way I would have said that 2021 is going to be better than 2020. But I think it was decisive. It may not be final, but it was a, a I think a, a line has been drawn. It may be a bit dot and dash and not a solid red line, but I think there is a line being drawn there. And I think the United States has said we are not a white supremacist nation and we are not an anti-scientific nation and we are not an authoritarian nation and we are, a, we are an open society and we, uh, we are tolerant and so on. So there has been a kind of uh, identity a sort of re reassertion of a certain kind of understanding of what, a, what an American is and what America's for. I think that is a good thing. It may not be complete and it may have all those issues that I was talking about in regard to identity politics. But I think, you know, it's a big step forward from losing to Donald Trump on the message that he ran and the empowerment of the people. And the second thing is I'm encouraged, I think I said in a previous podcast, you know, even Republican judges have stood up and discounted these baseless assertions. The people who count the elections, who organize the elections, have stood up and certified them. Republican governors have, in you know, in in, uh, in Georgia and other places, have certified those elections. They have refused to accept the the sort of conspiracies and so on that they continue to spread. So I think that is encouraging so i maybe it is clutching at straws but i think you know what if trump had won bloody hell i wouldn't want to you know i don't know what how much despair i would have been in and i'm glad he lost and i think i think despite the fact that he's very skilled uh, he's got a lot of support i i have a pragmatic cautious optimism about biden Because I think Biden is a president going into his second term in his mentality than a first term, because I don't think he's going to have a second term (laughs) for whatever reason. And I think he'll cross the 50-year mark in US politics. And I think he'll be looking to see what do I leave behind? What is my legacy? What kind of legacy? Is it going to be returning Trump or Trumpism in 2024? Or is it going to be some sort of pragmatic radicalism? And I think in foreign policy, um, I think it's more likely. But I do wonder what the the fact of agency. I think the I think you know give a little bit of credit to agency. I think he is coming in with the mentality of a second term, and I think he will probably want. He's called the election the battle for the soul of America. I think he takes that seriously, and I hope that these infrastructure programs, uh, the healthcare programs and the, the green kind of climate change programs, as well as the foreign policy. I think the foreign policy is a e- lot easier, actually. There's about 10 different things you could do very quickly, which would turn things around. Uh, so that's why I thought it was more pessimistic. Now, if you'd asked me just before the election, I would have been a little bit more le- less firm. But I think that has been something which I found encouraging.
2: I mean, I do have some optimism about uh, progress on climate change. Um, I do have optimism about uh, Biden bringing the U.S. back into the Paris Accords. Also, and perhaps this is naive of me, but I do think that the mass economic mobilization that has been uh, required due to the COVID crisis has raised expectations in terms of how governments can act quickly when there is a crisis to be solved, uh, and that with the right political will that could be applied effectively to climate change issues. Um, Whether that happens or not, we'll see. I am more pessimistic actually and more concerned about Britain specifically. Uh, I'm very concerned about what's going to happen in the next few weeks vis-a-vis Brexit. There are tangible warnings that we might be looking at a shortage of food uh, in January Um, and this is not coming from fringe sources, this is coming from reputable sources, um, which is a situation which simply should not be happening. and I'm very concerned about um, what's going to happen to uh, workers' rights and social rights in this country um, outside of EU regulation. I think that we have a real challenge in the next couple of years in this country to make sure that Brexit doesn't seriously end up derailing some of the things that um, that are valuable about Britain. Um, so that's my that's my pessimism.
0: I want to know whether whether you're feeling optimistic or pessimistic, Constantine. Huh?
1: Oh, I, this is a really copy uh, of God here because I wasn't really, you know, I was just uh, thinking I would mo- mostly ask questions and then throw in, you know, a few sort of observations here and there,
3: you know. Spot now. I,
1: I, I mean, I, I am, I am a generally very optimistic person. So I mean, I think, you know, I think there's stuff about optimism and pessimism and and, and it's, it's something that, in a, in a sense, is um. And how you it's sort of how you how you phrase that is, is is more indicative of sort of what your general disposition is and how you think about it. It's not so much indicative of really sort of an assessment of what's going on and whether that's going, you know, what? and I think we've all been very optimistic with varying doses of, of pessimism injected into it. And that obviously is to some extent a reflection on sort of how we thought about 2020 and what we're trained mm-hmm. to do and what we what we know about this year, what we know about politics, generally speaking. But I think it's more indicative of sort of a general outlook. And then, I mean, I think all four of us. Uh, I'm a fairly optimistic people, um, you know, and we tend to be optimistic for different reasons too, and that is another reason for optimism, I think. And uh, you know, whenever we are pessimistic, I think. And David, you always say that you are sort of you're you're the pessimist, I and mean, I don't think you're the pessimist in the group at all. I think you just uh, have a very sharp mind when it comes to determining, you know, whether this is really a good reason to be optimistic or not. And uh, you know, that doesn't make you a pessimist. So you know, long story short. Uh, I think uh, uh, I'm an optimist too, and I think things are going to get better in 2021. And in the, in the things that are going to get better specifically are many of the things that you already mentioned: mm-hmm. climate change policies, the turnaround in, in international cooperation, uh, a, a, re, a, a sharper focus on, on, on expertise in, in political decision making, the fact that we're going to have a President Biden and not a President uh, Trump mm-hmm. to sort of get upset about in 2021. Uh, all, all of these are very, very good reasons. And in my mind, we should also sort of, um, this is my personal sort of bias, uh, my personal addition to this is, I think we should be careful in sort of hoping for sort of the great liberation um, at any given point in time. I think sometimes um, sort of the center left and the left, uh, they have this sort of, this 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 idea that there just needs to be this one policy, this one sort of sort of uh, this one great moment, and then there's going to be a breakthrough into a better world forever. Um, and you know that's just I mean that's been like that. If you look at the programs of social democratic parties, which is what I do, uh, in the 19th century and ever since, there's always been. In, in various guises, but there's always been this notion that sort of this is the most important election. And after that, you know, I'm not saying it's always the Garden of Eden, but at least there's a significant step towards sort of our long-term goals. And I mean, I'm optimistic, but I also think I would sort of believe that baby steps—they're not—they're not a failure. They're, they're a good thing. Baby steps are, are always going to be steps in the right direction, in my mind. But and then this is a the second theme of uh, this uh, recording today. Um, and then I've observed that in both uh, indigit and, and Lee's, uh, you, you've always been sort of very sort of careful and very, very incisive in distinguishing sort of the, the, the impact of agency and structure. And I really like that because you've always said there's these sort of these structural underpinnings and undercurrents, but then there's the need for agency. You know, there's mm-hmm. people who really need to do stuff, you know, pe- regular people, but also political elites, uh, political leaders. Mm-hmm. Um, so in my mind, it is always important to be to be on the lookout for sort of negative counter reactions you know mm-hmm. uh, so yeah sort of long term things are moving in a good direction again in 2021 but then you know let's all be on the lookout and make sure that um, you know things are not going to turn bleak again and this um, is, this is what I'm sort of trying uh, this is what I'm going to try you know, to do in 2021 and I hope uh, David and uh, also in and Lisa. In, and on some occasions, we can also sort of do that um, in this podcast, maybe in 2021, and sort of evaluate our progress along these lines.
0: And with those wise words, we bring this episode of the City Politics Podcast to a close. Thanks for listening. And from Constantine and I and the whole crew here, we'd like to wish you the best over the holiday season and a happy new year. You can follow us on Twitter at the City Politics. Our guests can be followed at US Empire and at Lise R. Butler. Constantine is on as K underscore bossing. And of course, I'm at GD Blunt. Give us a follow if you like our political bants and historical hot takes. But you know what would be a great present for the new year? Give us a like, write a review, share us with your friends. Actually, you know what? You know what you're going to do? The next time you see your best friend, you're going to swipe their phone. And no, you're not going to look at their photos, you're going to sign them up to the City Politics Podcast. This has been the City Politics Podcast, the official podcast of the Department of International Politics at City, University of London. A big thanks to our producer, Atina Dimitrova, and to Cambio for
2: the music. Take care, everyone.